did anybody have any questions about the assignment? Or was it straightforward? Very good. Um, so the uh, question I have is I, I want each of you to um, provide um, one, inter one interesting variable from the GSS that you came across. If you need your homework back, you can. It wasn't, I mean, it should be, if it's interesting enough, you should remember <laughs> it, but no. <laughs> I'll give it back to you guys. So give me uh, an interesting variable uh, from the GSS. We'll start with, we'll just go around, start with Tim. Uh huh. Wait, so the variable is LAW1. Okay, great. So, and I guess that stands for um, a robbery. Okay. And the question is um, did any of the following criminal or legal have been secured to use since the current month? That was in 2003. Uh huh. And it was like a robbery, mugging, or sticker. Okay. I didn't know people Interesting. So it's like the question is, have you been a victim of? Yeah, ah, interesting. Yeah, that's great. I didn't know that that variable was in there either. So that's cool. <laughs> Gender. No. <laughs> Nice. And does it does it differentiate between legal or illegal? Or yeah, it just sort of <laughs> very good. Uh, single parents, single parents can raise kids as well as two, and they would agree or disagree that one parent can bring up a child as well as Okay. And do you remember what the response options were? Was it just agree or disagree, or I was it? I mean, yeah, like yesterday. Okay. Very good. Um, uh huh. Ah. So the question was, if um. Of a rape. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's really good. Said yes, it would be okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because, like, if you watch anything on abortion, they make it seem like it's a lot closer to the baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, would agree with that. Yeah. That's a good point. That's very good. I did pass for it and said, How proud of you of America? How are you of Americans for falling and achieving sports? Ah. How proud are we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. I mean, you guys 
I obviously got beyond the um, just background demographic stuff, and um, and so in sort of part of the part of the exercise is to let you know what data is in there, and so then if you're you know you can kind of say okay I, I'd like to do a paper on um, sort of people's attitudes on abortions and how that maybe differs by race, differs by religion, differs by age, um, and so or I think uh, Tim. Tim's example is, is a great one um, uh, where it says, have you been a victim of a, of a violent crime? Um, what other, um, so, so there's that question. The person might answer yes. What other, um, that they've been a victim of a violent crime, what other, like if there's other questions in the survey, um, what questions could a yes answer be associated with um, later on in the survey? Any ideas? Does that make sense, my question? Okay, so um, so what's, what I think is interesting, you have, you have a, a powerful question like that, or at least a, a, um, a situation where, wow, if you've been a victim of a violent crime, that's going to shape your perception of maybe the criminal system or um, a death penalty. And so you could see, wow, are people who've been a victim of a violent crime more likely to be pro-death penalty, you know, is there an association there? Whereas, like the people who haven't um, been a victim of a violent crime are less likely to be pro-death penalty. So that's the direction that we're moving in, and that's actually um, the focus of today is uh, on, on uh, collecting data, um, experiments, and observations, um, and sort of in that is this idea of association, or the association between um, two variables. And so it says uh, two variables are associated if the values of one variable uh, tend to be related to the value of the other variable. And so like with Tim's example, um, the variable of law one, is that uh, associated with the variable uh, death penalty? And so that's the thing that we're going to be kind of looking at um, and seeing what the implications of that type of association is. So if we look at our um, Duke student, uh, student survey, uh, <coughs> here is uh, all the variables along the top row. And um, what, what potential associations uh, do you actually notice from the data, just by looking at, at this data, what um, what associations do you see? Like two, what two variables seem to be associated with each other? Okay. So, what, and what do you what is it that you sort of see? A trend that you see. Okay. So. As, as the uh, value for height increases, the value for weight also seems to increase. Yeah, Chris? I don't know if it's Professor Smith, but it says like, almost like piercings and exercise. Huh. For some reason, a lot of them go like, the less piercings, the higher the exercise. Interesting. That's, so that's, that's a, most of them, not everyone, though. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's really good. So yeah, and, and actually, any association, uh, it, Rarely, I mean, almost never will it be locked in. Like, if it is, then you know something's wrong with the data. Sort of like if you ask someone what their income is in dollars, 
and then have another variable, what's your income in cents, those will be locked in. Like, you know, say my income is $1, it'll also be 100 cents and, you know, straight through. But with most variables, um, there's going to be, it's not going to be like clear cut, but you'll see patterns. And so that's really good um, that you see, like, huh, I wonder, you know, if right now I'm just showing you the first 15 respondents, but if I showed you all 600, um, there's ways to test to see, huh, is there a real association going on there more than just randomly, you know, being patterned together? Um, what other ones do you guys see on here? Um. Okay, yeah. Yep, yep, no, that's really good. Yeah, and again, it's, it, it doesn't mean it's a, a strict um, relationship. It just means there's an association. There's a pattern that we're seeing. Did you have one, Tim? No. Just stretching. Um, so the, the one that I saw was um, gender and piercings. So look at all these zeros are all men. So not terribly surprising, but again, it's another association that we see. But it doesn't mean that um, actually there's right from this, there's no woman who doesn't have a piercing. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so anyways, the I, one person has seven. Yep. And do they exercise? No, not very much. So. <laughs> One has eight piercing. An eight piercing, yeah. Wow. So, so um, the the idea is when when you're looking at variables and especially within statistics, what we're interested in is the association between two variables. Um, and so, and then then there's a unique type of association um, that that is even probably more interesting um, to sociologists is. Is this association uh, a causal association? So um, to kind of use some examples that you guys pulled up, uh, well, I'll move on. Let's see. OK, yeah, I need to clarify this. When deciding uh, about the potential causality um, between two variables, we need to identify or distinguish between the explanatory variable and the response variable. And so, um, OK. So the, the explanatory variable is sort of the variable that's going to cause a certain outcome. It's going to explain why the sort of outcome occurred. And the response variable is the outcome, the thing that, you know, that we're interested in. Like, um, so with, with Chris's example, um, actually, how would, how would you set it up? You were talking about piercings and exercise. Um, if, so we see an association there. Now, it could just be two variables associated with each other, or there could be a causal relationship. Um, and so if, if you were going to sort of take a stab at a theory, which one would be? Oh. Uh huh. So um, let's see. So can, can you take, take a stab? Uh-huh. So I guess you could say that less female will, will exercise and seem like the more the males are exercising more, more than females. 
almost every piercing was female. Uh-huh. And so more females that had less exercise, you could say. Okay. Yeah, this, you, you are way ahead of the game. So when we get about five slides up, you'll see that that's the, that's the perfect answer. So if you want to get, now that I disclosed the perfect answer. <laughs> Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so then in that scenario, which one would, which variable would be the explanatory variable? Uh, let's see. So, um, is exercise causing fewer piercings? That's, it's tricky. Well, so this is a good point. I mean, that's not even really a, a fair question because you could sort of argue it both ways. And so a lot of times when we're talking about causal relationships, it's like, well, wait, is A causing B or is B causing A? Or are they sort of just associated but not really driving each other? Um, and so we're going to show a couple examples. Um, so it says being female is positively associated with getting body piercings. So what that means is if, if you're a woman, uh, uh, there'll be a higher like, likelihood of having body piercings. Um, and so, uh, so then another way to look at it, does, does being a female cause body piercings? So let's, let's say this was our, our theory. Which, which variable would be the explanatory variable? The variable that sort of predicts an outcome that we're interested in. Okay, so female. So the explanatory variable or sort of the, the variable that's going to predict a certain outcome is going to be, in this case, female. Yes, Tim? Oh, you're getting it. <laughs> And then um, the response variable is the body piercings. So it's sort of, that's the outcome of interest. Um, another one would be uh, exercise. Exercising is negatively associated with smoking. And by the way, this is sort of how you make these statements of association. Because um, if you just said exercising is associated with smoking, you wouldn't know uh, in which direction. Like, you wouldn't know if it's... Um, you know, exercising is related to more uh, more smoking or vice versa. So the negatively sort of helps you know when one goes up, the other one goes down. Um, so in this statement, um, does exercising cause a person not to, to not smoke? Um, so what would be the explanatory exercising? So it's sort of like as uh, a person's uh, level of exercising, does that cause a certain outcome of whether to smoke or not smoke? Um, but you can also see this can be flipped around. Uh, does smoking cause a person to exercise less? So, and again, it sort of, it shows you that this, the causal relationship can really go in both directions, or it might be unrelated. So, um, it doesn't matter where the variables line up in the data set or anything like that. It's just more sort of our theory would drive sort of these th these questions, and then we use statistics to test that. Um, height is positively associated with weight. 
Um, does being taller cause a person to weigh more? Um, and if you look at any of these, they're, they're kind of, they're not clear cut. You know, it's like, well, does being taller cause a person to weigh more? Well, I know some skinny tall people and I know some fat short people. Um, but, and so is, is there a cause or, or is it more um, just sort of two variables being associated and there's another factor, sort of like what Chris is alluding to, that's sort of driving the overall relationship. Um, so here, here's an example, like if, if you look at um, global politics in, in developing countries, you have, um, you have two variables. One is um, number of TVs that a country has per capita, and then the other variable is life expectancy. What they notice when they, when they gather data on countries around the world on, on life expectancy and the number of TVs, what they found was a very, very strong relationship that as the number of TVs per people, per thousand per capita, increases, life expectancy also increases. So there's a huge initiative, not really, but um, <laughs> to start sending TVs to all these developing countries to help increase the life expectancy because they saw a very clear relationship that having TVs must improve life expectancy because it's right there. We see it with all the data. What's the problem with this uh, proposed uh, way to benefit the, the world? Okay. Okay. Associated. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, not, it could just not be just the views, it could be just like the channels, like watching the news or something on like health tips and stuff. Uh huh. It could be a reason, like, the people do it that way, not just the TV. But yeah. Like, be the channels on the TV. Okay. So, so it could, I mean, and that's a, that's a good point. It could be interesting. Like, do these people have greater access to information? Uh, that people in other countries don't have. And so that could be um, more closely related to having a TV, um, or it could be, as, as um, Brittany was saying, like overall GDP um, sort of leads to having more TVs and having greater life expectancy. So this is sort of a, a caricatured example, but you'd be amazed at how often researchers find a relationship and then say, oh, okay, X is causing Y. And they move forward with it with a huge agenda. Um, but the kind of the main point in this is that association, just because there's association, doesn't mean that it's a causal relationship. Um, so back in, uh, I think it was the 1920s or so, um, they were doing research on causes of polio. And they basically, these, these researchers at uh, universities had basically found out that eating ice cream was causing polio. And so here's a clip of um, sort of how this research and this finding came about. Freaking out. Hi there, boys and girls. This is Captain Kangaroo. Say, I'd like you to meet a friend of mine. So you know, it's lots and lots of fun to have a pet and run and play and jump with, isn't it? But did you know that there are some boys and girls who can't run and jump and play? It's all because of a thing called polio. When I 
nothing of bad historical assumptions about correlation and causality. I think of polio 100 years ago when it was this horrible mystery that it was, you know, claiming a lot of lives. And it was really scary because it mostly struck children. And uh, there was a strong line of research that suggested that ice cream caused polio, that ice cream consumption caused polio. The reason that that correlation was thought to be causal was that um, polio spiked in the summertime um, for reasons that really weren't very well understood, but it did. And ice cream sales spiked during the summertime. So these researchers had seen that whenever there was a lot of ice cream being sold and consumed, there was a lot more polio. And so there was really literally the beginnings of this kind of ice cream persecution to try to stop out polio. And it sounds ridiculous, um, but you see it all the time now, people trying to fight against or build up something that they're sure is connected to something else, which it turns out just isn't. So, um, so that's an example of, of 100 years ago. But even uh, today, it just it still happens. And even you'll find you'll you'll sort of fall into this trap as well, where you'll be like, oh my gosh, look, look what I like. This is related to this. Like, this is driving this. And even your mind kind of wants to convince you that this is true, uh, when in reality, it actually might not be a causal relationship. And so, um, it's one of the I'll say the the biggest mistakes or errors in. Uh, sociological research and statistical uh, analysis is that people sort of see a relationship and automatically think one is causing the other. Um, but as, as Chris alluded to, um, the, the, the way to sort of say, well, if it isn't causal, how is the relationship there? Like, what's, how can they be associated but not causing each other? And uh, it comes up to the, to the point of um, confounding variable. Um, and so it's a, a third variable uh, that's associated with both the explanatory and the response variable. And that's, that's what's known as a, a confounding variable. And so, um, let's see, Chris, your example was body piercing is associated with less exercise. And then you said, oh, there might be a, a third variable that sort of is associated with both of them. And what was that again? The male, okay, so gender. Yeah. So, um, so in, in Chris's example, um, let's see. Well, we didn't really clarify what the explanatory or response variable was, but the uh, confounding variable would be gender. Um, so, so really, in a sense, um, piercing and, and let's just say we were thinking that piercing was causing less exercise. So piercing would be uh, the explanatory variable. And, and the response variable would be exercise. Um, what we're interested in is what's the confounding variable that really affects the outcome variable. That's, and so that's where its gender is, seems to be really um, explaining exercise. And so, so what you have is confounding variable, it's associated with, with, with both. Um, the explanatory and the response. So gender influences body piercings, and it also influences exercise. And so what it does is it brings into question this causal relationship. The relationship is still there, but it just says, mm, it's not body piercings that's causing um, the uh, less exercise. It's, it, it's some other confounding variable, or a combination of other confounding variables, or even as as uh, Brittany was saying, that 
there, body piercing might be causing some less exercising because of, of the things that you explained. Um, but just to sort of look at these two variables and say this is causing that is, is, a, is a broad overstatement, and it's not taking into account all these other confounding variables. Yeah. So, so you, can, you could explain it, change the Explanatory. Explanatory in the response. You can, if you explain it well, you can flip them if you, if you think it's the other way, or is it, or is it sometimes will always be one or the other? Well, and so um, this is where uh, theory comes in. So you have to sort of, um, and we'll be talking about this later on, is that you have a hypothesis. You, you'll say, just like Brittany was saying, okay, well, before you do any research, you're just you, you have a theory, and you're like. I think body piercing leads to less exercise because of, of the, the health uh, impairments and even just the, the general, uh, it's harder to exercise if you have a lot of body piercings or whatever. And so, um, so that's your theory out there. And you, want, you basically want to um, go to the athletic department ultimately and say all athletes should be banned from body piercing because it's hurting our performance as athletes. Um, and so that's your theory. And so then you're um, the... the um, uh, the athletic department uh, director is going to say, well, do, do you have any evidence for this? And so then you go and gather your data on all Duke students and look at uh, the relationship between body piercing and exercise. And so then you would test to see if, it, if it's causing it. And so she's going to test if, if body piercing is causing less exercising and, and see if that's the case. But say you had a theory of um, less people who exercise less um, don't care about their bodies and they're going to you know, pierce them all over the place. And so then you're going to sort of develop a theory for that, go out and gather data and test for that. So, um, and, and it's hard to know actually. I mean, both your studies won't necessarily be conclusive, mm -hmm. but you'll, you'll be adding evidence and then you might say, well, let's, let's do an experiment or let's do some other type of thing to see, to, te to further test our theory. So, yeah, but you don't sort of, the, the thing is you, you, you start with a theory versus if you look at the data and you're like, oh, look at this data, I bet you body piercing causes this, and then you're kind of like, you're sort of letting the data sort of um, create your theory, and you're like, well, that's, that's not the direction that you would go in, um, in doing that. So, but that's, that's a really good question, and it's a very tricky one, too, because a lot of times people will say X is causing Y, and then someone will say, well, no, my theory suggests that Y is causing X. Um, but then the really smart people will say, what about all these confounding variables that you haven't ever accounted for that are really driving this, this relationship? Um, so, so it says whenever confounding variables are present or may be present, uh, a, a causal association actually cannot be determined. So, you cannot uh, sort of say that a, that a relationship is causal if there's confounding variables present. And actually, in, in reality, there's always confounding variables present. Um, so with like uh, eating ice cream, that's the explanatory variable. Getting polio is the response variable. Um, and let's see if I had... Oh yeah, do you guys remember what the, what the confounding variable, what one of the hypothesized confounding variables is? Uh-huh, yeah, so hot weather. 
was was sort of the the compounding variable that influenced both ice cream consumption and getting polio. And so, um, but but there's also there's also a ton of other confounding variables that could be influencing um, eating ice cream and getting polio. And so, um, you, theoretically, you'd have to do a, a study that accounts for all the possible confounding variables, um, which is impossible to do. Um, the other example is uh, number of TVs per capita and life expectancy. So again, we're saying that number of TVs explains life expectancy, the outcome of life expectancy. Um, but what was the confounding variable that Brittany proposed? Remember GDP? Well, so um, basically as, as wealth goes up, um, both the number of TVs that, that are in the country goes up and the life expectancy goes up. And it brings into question um, that, well, yeah, maybe maybe TVs isn't causing an increase. See, maybe it's wealth that's doing it. Um, so, so this all relates to how we collect our data. And um, so we have the population. We grab a sample that's reflective of the population. And then we gather data on this sample. Now, there's, um, there's two ways uh, to collect data. And these are pretty much kind of the two uh, typologies for how you would do a research project. And one is through an experiment. And the other is through uh, an observational study. And so I'm going to unpack these a little bit. But these are basically, there's, there's two ways that, that, that data can be collected. And um, so you have uh, the experiment versus observational study. Um, in the experiment, now this is sort of the, the key thing, is that the researcher controls the value of the explanatory variable. And so, uh, and, and maybe in, in medical terms, uh, the researcher controls who gets the treatment. And so an experiment is sort of a controlled environment. It's sort of, uh, if you think about putting people into like a, a lab or whatever, um, sort of like this, this picture of, of do, running an experiment on people, uh, this, is, this is what's going on, is that um, the researcher is controlling who gets um, the value of the variable that they get. So I mean, in extreme cases, the, the researcher would control who gets body piercings or not. You know, so you're, you're actually controlling the explanatory variable. Um, whereas in an observational study, the researcher does not control the value of any variable, but simply observes the values as they naturally exist. And so a lot of survey research is observational study. And so, um, so like the, the Duke student database that, that I have is um, just looking, just making observations. Like we, I think they probably asked how many body piercings do you have, but the idea was, you're just observing. You know, you could either ask the person or you could write it down, but you're you're basically just sort of you're not manipulating anything. You're just sort of taking in data. Um, so, and then this is sort of uh, a, a key thing within this. And don't worry about writing all this down because you'll you'll get it. But it says observational studies cannot be used to establish causation. Uh, and the main reason, or the reason, is that there's always confounding variables that have not been measured or accounted for in observational studies. 
So um, in order to sort of show that this is that x is causing y, you have to sort of eliminate or account for all possible compounding variables. Like Chris brought up one, but there could be a bunch of other compounding variables that are really driving this that don't don't have to do with body piercings. And so, so this is a limitation of observational studies is that you can only sort of identify associations, but you can't sort of claim causality. Um, and we'll, we'll again go into this in, in more detail, but that's sort of a key thing is that um, you can't make causal claims when you're using survey data. Um, however, uh, compounding variables can be avoided through experiments by randomly assigning the values of the explanatory variable. So this is sort of the difference between why you would run an experiment and why you would just do um, observational studies. So the experiments allow you to uh, eliminate confounding variables. So and I'll, I'll go in and explain how that actually works. Um, let's see. So, so we start with a, a randomized experiment. That's sort of like what, we're, what, we're, what you're doing when you set up an experiment. And so in a randomized experiment, the explanatory variable for each unit is determined randomly before the response variable is measured. And so um, probably, yeah, the, the best example is to, is to think of like medical research. Like there's, there's a new drug out, um, and let's say there's pa uh, cancer, cancer patients or whatever. And this, this drug is supposed to um, cure cancer, remove ca cancer from their body. And so um, what you could do is, is say, and let's just use a, a simple example saying like exercise uh, is going to eliminate the cancer. And so in an observational study, you would go to all these people who, who had cancer and you would ask them, how much do you exercise? And then you would and then see the relationship between exercising and, and getting rid of cancer. But what you don't know is, well, did these people do a bunch of other things that sort of helped or hindered their ability to lose cancer? Um, in a randomized experiment, you actually, the explanatory variable is exercise, and you, you randomly determine who's going to exercise before um, the response variable is measured before the, the variable of have you gotten rid of cancer has been measured. And so, um, so it's, the, the ordering is very important in, in this. Um, so the explanatory variable is also known as uh, the treatment. And in this case, it has a, valuable, a, ver a value of either 0 or 1. And so it's basically, did you get the treatment or not? Um, and so that would distinguish between the two groups. So then the way, you, the way you do this is you randomly divide the sample into two groups and assign um, one of the groups to receive the treatment. So you have your, your sample from the population. You say, OK, we're going to run an experiment. Half of you are going to get the treatment. The other half aren't. Um, and so what this does is that this assures that the explanatory variable or the treatment for each unit is determined by random chance alone and is not influenced by any other confounding variables. So in my mind, this is kind of tricky. Like I was like, wait, how does that work? Because um, there's still confounding variables in there. But the idea is that the confounding variables have been randomly distributed throughout your sample at this point. 
So they're not, they're no longer gonna, they can't, they can no longer have a direct effect on the outcome. So when you're saying like could it seem like it could be like the placebo, like once someone's taking one, one group's taking one pill, one's taking the placebo, is that kind of like? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And I'll, and I'll again, because I think this, for me at least, this is confusing as I'm thinking about it conceptually because I'm like, well, how do you eliminate confounding variables? Because there's always factors that could be causing the, that could be associated or influencing the outcome that we're interested in. And so um, another key factor in these randomized experiments is to have a control group, like, like Chris talked about. Um, so when determining whether a treatment is effective, it's important to have a comparison group, which is known as the control group. And so, because if you just um, had people exercise, but you didn't have a control group of people not exercising, you wouldn't know um, if it was having a significant effect or just in general people overcame cancer sort of as a whole, as a population. You need a control group that wasn't getting the treatment to see if it was effective. Um, so and that's, that's basically what, what that next part says. Um, so in all randomized experiments need either a control group or two different treatment groups. So one group, you know, you could say is exercise more effective in treating cancer than uh, radiation or something. So you'd have, you could compare two groups. So if we're going to set up a randomized experiment, this is, this is how we would do it. Um, you'd start by gathering a random sample from the population. So it always starts with getting a sample. And so let's say there's, there's 100 people in the sample. Um, then you need to randomly assign the value of the explanatory variable. Um, you can do that by putting all the names into a hat and randomly pull out the names to go into different treatment groups. And this is sort of a, a key thing. It needs to be randomly assigned. Like you can't say, okay, all the women go over here, you're going to get the treatment, and all the men go over here, because you've just sort of taken a potentially confounding variable and sort of sorted by that confounding variable. So it has to just be randomly assigned. And so one way of doing it is put all the names in a hat. Um, another way to do it, like if, if I wanted to randomly assign the six of you to uh, an experiment, I could put uh, your name on, on a card, each of your names on a card, shuffle the deck, and then just randomly uh, distribute um, the cards into two piles. And so it just be, it's, the idea is to get the groups to be randomly selected. So you have a random sample, and then you randomly put them into two groups. Um, or you can use technology, which is often what's done as the random number generator. So it takes your random sample and then randomly distributes them into the two treatment groups. Yeah? Did we ever go back and like, make sure that it's true? I don't know, because I just remember like, if you flip a coin, like, it always ends up being 50-50. Uh-huh. So you get like, 10 tails in a row. Like, if, yeah. if you randomly shuffle cards, there's still a chance that all the boys end up in one group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I and I've thought so about that like too. That yeah, no, I I thought because I had that exact same question. I was like, well, but what if by chance, yeah. <laughs> you know? And and so the the key for that is if your sample is large enough, yeah. it won't happen. So you're right. So yeah, if you think of this scenario, it could be it, just because we have six people, the chances of it sort of being non-random. Um, are, are much higher, whereas if you have a, and that's where sample size is important, and that's why you need a certain amount 
to make sure it's randomly. So that's a good a good question. Okay, so we're gonna do a, a, a real life uh, experiment um, with this, so the concept can hopefully sink in. So um, there's a study on cat, or we want to do a study on caffeine and academic performance. And so the the research question is: Does consuming caffeine before an exam undermine your performance on the exam? And so um, this thing right here, n equals 100. What does that mean? Uh, yeah, you got it. Uh, yeah, you show us big and little. Uh huh. That sample. Sample, awesome, perfect. So, um, so basically, we're going to be working with a sample of a hundred people. We've randomly selected a uh, hundred students, and that's our sample. Um, okay, so in this uh, research question. What is the explanatory variable? What variable is predicting or going to sort of um, lead to a certain outcome? Consuming Chelsea. Caffeine. Consuming caffeine, yes. So, so the explanatory variable, the thing that we're interested in is the, the effects of caffeine on the outcome, which is your performance on the exam. So um, consume, you know, the variable would be, did you consume caffeine before the exam? Okay, and so then the response variable would be performance. exam performance, exactly, your grade. Um, so if we were going to do an observational study uh, to, to test this research question, here's how it would be. Uh, we would simply get, get, gather data from the 100 participants. We'd have our sample of 100. And uh, they would take the exam, and uh, we would maybe the first question on the on the exam would be, "Did you consume caffeine before taking this exam?" And they would just answer yes or no. And then we'd also, um, after they took the exam, we'd have their exam grade. And so we might find an association um, between caffeine consumption before the exam and, and exam performance. But what would be a limitation? Of, of doing it as an observational study. Chelsea? If you Exactly. So there's other confounding variables. Um, so it might be all the people who consumed um, caffeine before the exam had been up all night studying and were crashing, or they could have been up all night partying, too. You know, you just, there's all these other confounding variables that could be sort of feeding into this association that we found. And so, so that's a limitation of an observational study. We can say that, if we find this to be true, we can say that caffeine consumption is associated with exam performance, but we can't say that it causes uh, uh, poor or better exam performance because of these other confounding variables. Um, and so, but, um, okay, so yeah. You guys answered this. If we find a relationship, um, we can't make the causal claim that caffeine consumption undermines exam performance because of confounding variables. Um, and you guys named some of the confounding variables. You guys are on top of it. Um, so you know we could control for all these factors. So as Chelsea said, we could say, um, how many hours of sleep did you get before? You know, at the, at the top of the exam, we could add 
more questions, like how many hours of sleep did you get before the exam? Would you do the night of the exam? Would it, you know, and try and, and what's your gender and also what's, um, what's your math SAT score and you know, all these other confounding variables, but the list is endless and it's hard, you know, I mean, it's just impossible to account for all those things. Um, so we can never, with observational studies, we could never make a causal uh, claim. Um, so yeah, because there's other confounding variables. So that goes on to why we would do a randomized experiment if we want to make a causal claim. So the explanatory variable is consume caffeine before the exam. The response variable is your grade on the exam. So in a randomized experiment, the way you set it up is we randomly assign the value of the explanatory variable for each participant. So um, any ideas of, of how we could do this? We have a sample of 100 students. Yes? Uh-huh. Exactly. Perfect. So, so um, to do this, we'd randomly select 50 students. And again, it's important that they be randomly selected. It's not like, hey, are there 50 students who, who um, want to drink caffeine? Because, again, you would get the ones who are like dead tired and they're like, please give me caffeine. Um, so you need to randomly select them and then have them consume caffeine before taking the exam. And then you would forbid the other 50 from consuming caffeine. Because if you just sort of said do whatever you want to the other 50, some of them might consume caffeine or not. And so you need to control for caffeine consumption. So you, you require 50 to take it and require 50 not to take it. Um, I won't do this to you guys. Uh, I have another experiment, but not. <laughs> um, so um, in the, the, the key of this is that it assures that the explanatory variable for each person uh, is determined by random chance alone and is not influenced by confounding variables. So does this, let's see, it was, I don't know if it was Brittany or Chris who said, or you, you talked about how do you know it's going to be randomly assigned. But the idea is, um, when you do sort of split the group up in 50 and it's a large enough group of 50, you're going to have some people in this group who takes the caffeine who spent all night studying, and you're going to have some who spent um, all night partying, and you're going to have in this group some who spent all night, whatever the variable, and you're going to have some women in this group and some women in this group. And so what it does is any variable that sort of, w or any factor that would have maybe um, affected exam performance has been split up into the two groups. And so it kind of evens itself out. And the only thing that, the only factor that hasn't been split up into the two groups evenly is whether or not you're taking caffeine. And so we've sort of isolated that one variable into the two groups, whereas all the other confounding variables have been randomly distributed across the two groups. Does that make, does, do you guys believe that, buy that? So think, yeah, you can basically think of any factor. You're like, oh, but what about, I mean, well, there's some of those people in this group and some of those people in this group, so they would even each other out, um, whether it's getting a better grade or worse grade. So then, um, so then if we find a relate, so if we run this experiment, we put 50 people in one group and have them take caffeine, and another 50 uh, not take caffeine, they take the exam, we get the exam grades, and look, we find a relationship that all the people who took caffeine before the exam, on average, did better than the people who didn't have caffeine. Um, can we make 
um, the causal claim that caffeine consumption actually undermines um, exam performance. Let's say the caffeine people did consistently worse on the exam. Can we can we make the causal claim, or is there would there be other things that we need to account for? So we can make it. Can we can we sort if we ran this experiment? Can we make a claim? And we, we see the relationship that caffeine consumption is associated with poor exam performance. Can we make a causal claim? Yes. We, Rachel McKay? Um. I mean, is it as simple as that, or is, uh, is there other, other things that we would need to do? Like what? <laughs> okay, control certain things. Some people might be smart. Like, so explain that. Like, I mean, because some people could, I mean, drink as much caffeine as they like. But maybe they're already smart. I mean, it might not even affect anything. Uh huh. And some people might not touch caffeine, and they've, they've never done well in that class. Yeah. Maybe it's a certain class or something. Because you can't have like several classes because you're taking you take the exact same exam. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, some people could be struggling in class already. Mm-hmm. are doing well, so it's hard to yeah. do that, too. What are you going to find that, like, you need to have a counselor? How so? You're going to have people struggling in both those situations. Uh-huh. Is it, like, you're going to have people that should, that's going to come to the right course, but, kind of, you know, do it first? It could also be what kind of course it is. I mean, it could be, you're here to do, you could be an engineering course. Yeah. And there's, like, a lot of, like, big class people, a lot of people yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, but but so even I mean I think what Chris is saying is is really valid. Um, now those people, um, which so you have the group that takes caffeine mm-hmm. and then the group that doesn't take caffeine. Which group um, would those people more likely be in? Like the ones who are doing worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it could. I mean, it could be the caffeine side. Well, but, but we hard. but we randomly assign them. Yeah, so so it's, you, you'll never know. I mean, like you never know who's like like you're struggling, who who's like had the who was struggling that course to begin with. Yeah. Because you ran like you randomly trying to. So so and there's there's a hundred um, stu- students in our sample, and we took fifty and we put them in here, fifty in here, and let's say there's ten students in the class who just are not. Let's say it's statistics, and they're just not good at statistics, and so. Regardless if they take caffeine or don't take caffeine, they're going to bomb the test, yeah. right? So those 10 people, um, where would they likely, which group would they likely end up in? Or what would be the, where would they be? I mean, if they're randomly assigned, you could have like eight in one side. I mean, does, I mean like, yeah. is there a way you can, I don't know if there's a way you can know. Can you, can you look at like people's grades before you like, get the turn? <coughs> well, and so... Yeah, no, and so and that's so if you have a large enough group, and it might even you might need to do more than a hundred, but let's say you did a thousand, um, if they're randomly assigned, and, and there's only ten, they're going to be fairly evenly distributed, or even enough to sort of make a wash. So the low the low performing people are going to pull down this average grade of this group, and they're also going to pull down the average grade of this group. Um, so 
So, and, and that's where, I mean, that's, I think you're bringing up a good point, because intuitively you're like, but, but what if, you know, all these what ifs, and, and that's where sort of the random assignment is key, because what that does is it eliminates all these other things, which are completely legitimate and valid things. It's like, well, what about this, or what about this type of person? Um, or you might even say, well, but caffeine has different effects on different people. Um, but then what that might actually show is that there's no relationship. You know, and so that's enough, it, it doesn't mean that caffeine is going to have an association. Because we might run the experiment and find that there's no correlation whatsoever. Um, classes, the biggest part though, is if you're taking orgo, a lot of people already did B's and C's. Uh-huh. So, I mean, caffeine could, I mean, could make it worse, but it already is already low. Yeah. But now, is, is there still a distribution of grades? So even if um, the, the grades range between a 40 and a 60, there's still a range of grades, right? Okay, so it isn't like everyone gets a 40. Okay. Oh, so you're doing, okay, I got it. So there's, um, and so, and we're taking the, the average grade. So, but I mean, that, I mean, I think it's a great question because it is, to me at least, it's, it's intuitively, it's like, I don't want to buy it. I'm like, but how can you eliminate all confounding variables? And the, and the key of it is the randomly assigning and having a large enough sample size. Because if we only did the six people in this class, there's a good chance that, that one side would be weighted in a particular direction that would be sort of throwing off the experiment. And we will be talking about sort of what, what sample size we would need for this. But um, so yeah, that's, that's a good question. It isn't something that comes it isn't intuitively obvious, but if you, in a sense, do the math, and you actually ran your own experiment, you sort of had 100 people and you marked um, 10 of them with an X as like the low performing people, and then we shuffled the cards and distributed them into two groups, I bet you this group would have four, and this group would have six. And the next time we did it, this group would have five and five, next time it'd be seven and three. And on, you know, if we did that, uh, a thousand times, it would come out to be about five in this group and about five, you know. So that's a good point, though. Um, ah, look it, you even brought up my question. What about the multitude of confounding variables that could affect exam performance? Um, and it's because people have been randomly assigned to be in the caffeine group and the no caffeine group, the values of the confounding variables will be evenly distributed between the two groups. So it's even if there's just 10 who are poor, poor performers, or if there's 90 who are poor performers, they're going to get evenly distributed, or whatever factor we're sort of um, that we'd be concerned about. Um, so and this sort of restates it because the because the explanatory variable is randomly assigned, it's not associated with any other variables, and thus compounding variables are eliminated, and so. Um, you have all these confounding variables, but when you um, do a randomized experiment, you sort of eliminate its ties to any other confounding variable, whether it's I don't do good in math, or I'm a male, or whatever. And so then that opens up um, the door to make the, the causal claim that caffeine consumption influences exam performance. Um, so then we go on to what, what you talked about, um, placebo and blinding. And so um, the control groups should be given a placebo, a fake treatment that resembles the active treatment. And um, the reason uh, 
for this would be, um, let's see, oh yeah. Using a placebo is only helpful if participants don't know whether they're getting the placebo or the active treatment. So if we ran the experiment and um, I gave everyone um, a nice cup of Starbucks, the caffeine group, they would know, hmm, I'm getting caffeine. And the other group would know, hmm, I'm getting nothing. And so that would sort of affect it. Whereas if I just had a caffeine pill and I gave it to the 50 in this group and I had a, a pill of um, you know, nothing or whatever, non-active non ingredient, um, and they took that, neither group would kind of know um, whether they were getting the real treatment or just a fake treatment. Um, and so that's, that's sort of, that enhances your experiment. It sort of eliminates sort of some of the, the psychological factors that might see like that would be a confounding variable because the people in the no caffeine group would all of them would have sort of a, a skewed psychological effect like hmm I'm not getting the treatment and so actually this group that you just randomly created you sort of imposed a non-random effect on that group um, so that's where you, you, don't, you want to keep it as random as possible so there's no confounding variables. Um, and then it says, if possible, randomized experiments should be double-blind. Um, neither the participants or the researchers involved should know which treatment the, patients are the participants are actually getting. And so, in a sense, I shouldn't even know. If I was running the experiment, I shouldn't be like, hmm, okay, I know I'm giving these people the caffeine pill, so I'm going to watch them or, you know, kind of be, you know, it's just better if I don't know. I just sort of say, here's a bag of 50 pills. I don't know if they have caffeine in them or if they're the placebo. And so that's the idea of a double blind. Like, you don't know, and the researcher doesn't know. Because even I could skew it by sort of treating you a different way. Um, um, so this is kind of an interesting thing that sort of comes up in, um, in experiments. It says, often, people will experience the effect they think they should be experiencing even if they aren't actually receiving the treatment. So like, just by me giving you a pill, this, this no caffeine group, they're like, ooh, I'm getting like some energy boost or something. I must be getting something this good, or especially if it's like um, a red pill, or I don't know. <laughs> so you, you, you have this psychological effect that, hmm, getting a pill uh, has a positive effect or is gonna affect my outcome. Um, and this is kind of interesting. This is one study estimated that 75% of the effectiveness of antidepressant medication is due to the placebo effect. Yeah. Can you not tell them what kind of pill they're taking? Good point. Yeah. Yes, exactly. No, and so that'd be that's when it's ethically um, possible, you can do that. Sometimes you need to let people know we're doing a caffeine exam performance uh, study, will you be willing to participate? Um, and if it's ethical, then yeah, that's, that's the ideal. But even, even getting a pill, just by virtue of getting a pill, sort of has the effect, even if you don't know how it's going to affect you. Um, and so, um, so here, here's an interesting clip that sort of talks about placebos. And this is all in the context of experiments and getting treatments. Now you've all heard of the placebo effect before, when something with no known therapeutic value can actually make people feel better. It's a great trick our minds play on us, that by believing and expecting something to work, it actually does. But what's weird is that the strength of the effect can differ for some really strange reasons. 
For example, the same placebo can treat pain half as well as aspirin, while at the same time treating pain half as well as morphine. Morphine's a much more powerful painkiller, but a placebo is half as effective as body. Saying a placebo will reduce pain reduces pain, but saying that the same placebo will increase pain increases pain. Believing that a placebo will make you feel better will make you feel better. Believing that it won't has the opposite effect. Now, placebos aren't just pills. They can be creams, injections, surgeries or drinks. You can even get placebo buttons. They don't actually do anything, but they sure as hell make you feel like you're in control. But not all placebos are equal. The effect of the placebo is bigger when the pill itself is bigger. Or if you have two instead of one. Or two once a day instead of one twice a day. And a capsule will usually be the pill. And a syringe will usually be the capsule. And anything with a big ass science machine can outperform any of them. A plain pill works worse than a branded one. A discounted pill works worse than a pricey one. And even a pill in a plain box does worse than one that's all shiny and shit. Placebos that are blue work best as downers, and placebos that are red are better as uppers. Studies have shown that people who take their meds on a regular basis are less likely to die than those that don't, even if those meds are all placebos. You can even get addicted to placebos. In one study, a group of women took placebos for more than five years. 40% of them suffered withdrawals afterwards. In fact, the effect of placebos can be so strong that some people want them banned from sports. But I mean, how would we even test for that? Placebos don't even seem to work from place to place. For example, in Germany, using a placebo to treat ulcers works better than anywhere else in Europe. But using a placebo that treats hypertension doesn't work nearly as well as it does for its neighbors. Now, remember that all of this is about comparing things that both have nothing medically effective in them, which goes to show that a placebo isn't about what's in it, but about the beliefs that we load onto it. Our minds create the medicine, and that is pretty freaking weird. So, um, so kind of the, the the point about this one is that it's just really amazing that that something that has no uh, therapeutic effect or value can actually have all these effects. But what it what it's um, showing for our purposes is that when you run an experiment, it's good to give both groups sort of the same thing. So any type of placebo effect that might be out there is sort of introduced to each group equally. And so it's not to say that, oh, we shouldn't use placebo. I mean, yeah, we shouldn't use placebos. It's more to say if you don't use a placebo, the group that is getting the treatment that actually has to take a pill uh, is going to experience a placebo effect from that. And so psychologically, they're going to be like, oh, I'm getting a pill because it's going to um, make me less depressed or whatever. And so by giving it to both groups, you can, and again, the people who um, placebos are going to affect, like who, who have that psychological dis disposition, are going to be randomly assigned to the two groups. So, so the idea is if you don't sort of introduce a placebo, the people who actually get the real treatment, even if the, because tr again, we're running an experiment. We don't know if caffeine really affects exam performance. It's not a foregone conclusion. Um, and so 
it could be just the placebo effect. If we find a relationship and we only give these people a pill it, and we find this, this strong relationship, it might just be the placebo. It's like, oh, the professor gave me a, a pill before the exam and so I'm going to do better. So you eliminate that by, um, by giving both groups a pill. Any questions about placebo or how that works? Um, so give the control group a placebo so that every participant thinks they're receiving uh, the treatment. Um, and then what, what Chris alluded to, uh, when ethically acceptable, it's even better if the participants don't even know the nature of the treatment they're receiving. Um, you know, it, it doesn't help to say, we're giving you caffeine because we think it will undermine your exam performance. Um, that would kind of freak you out or whatever. And so you're like, well, caffeine, I get really jittery, I'm going to get really nervous and all this stuff. So if when, when you can do it, it's best that they don't even know. They just sort of know you're taking a pill. Um, so um, some limitations uh, with, with randomized experiments, um, because they are, they are ideal in the sense of making causal claims, um, but sometimes they're not ethical. Um, case in point, if I ran the caffeine experiment on you guys, um, you'd be like, hey, uh, I don't want you messing with my grade any more than you're already going to, so <laughs> um, I don't want to be a part of this. And, and so I couldn't require you to be a part of my experiment. Um, and so I'd need volunteers, and none of you, you might not volunteer for that. Um, it might not be economically feasible. I mean, to, to truly run a, a good controlled experiment on a large sample of people um, can get really expensive. And so it's not always um, the, the case. I'll, I'll use Tim's example of law one. Um, have you been a, a, um, a victim of a violent crime? We could run an experiment on that. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily be um, methodologically possible. Well, it, is, it is possible, but um, it might not be ethical. So. There's a lot of things that we'd love to run experiments on, but there's limitations into, into what we can actually run an experiment on. Um, and so often, um, we have to do the best we can with the data from observational studies. And so um, you, you might not be able to make a causal claim, but I think, again, with, with Tim's example, it's related to being a victim of a violent crime and uh, your feelings on death penalty, if we find a really, really strong relationship, that's meaningful in and of itself. That it, it shows that, that there's a strong relationship. Now, you don't know if um, death penalty, people who are pro-death penalty are more likely to be victims of violent crime. Maybe. Maybe you live in a neighborhood um, that has higher crime rates, and so then you're, you're naturally inclined to be um, uh, pro-death penalty, and so then, you know, so the relation, the causal relationship could go the other way, but, but basically it's still okay and important to find strong relationships. It doesn't mean that these observational studies have no value. It's just we can't make a causal claim. So, and then randomization, okay, this is sort of an overview of the last two, the last two lectures. Um, so there's two, two levels of randomization, and randomization is sort of the key to getting good data. And so um, the question is, was the sample randomly selected? If yes, then you can generalize to the population. Remember yesterday or two days ago we talked about if you aren't randomly selecting the population, you might have a skewed group that you're studying. 
Um, and so then, if that's the case, you can't generalize from the population. And then the second element of randomization is, was the explanatory variable randomly assigned? And so if yes, like in the case of an experiment, then you can make causal claims. And if no, you can't make causal claims. So this is, this is kind of key, and this will sort of come up again um, throughout the course, is that um, is, the ra is the explanatory variable randomly assigned? Like, is it ex an experiment going on? Or was it just an observational study where, you know, whoever showed up to the class having drink and caffeine before the exam, that's who we got. Um, because you can still, you can still, say we did the observational study of the caffeine test, you could still find a relationship. You know, if, if at the beginning of the exam we had everyone write at the top, did you, you know, did you consume caffeine before the exam, and we gathered all the data, we might find a relationship. And we might find a very strong relationship. And we can sort of, there's implications for that. But we can't ultimately say that caffeine causes um, poor exam performance. But we can say we have a lot of evidence that there's a strong relationship between consuming caffeine and performing poorly on the exam. So, so there's, a, there's a, a nuanced difference. And so you don't want to say caffeine causes poor exam performance. But you can say there's a very strong relationship um, so, um, let's see, randomization. So, okay, th I'll just walk you through this so you can sort of put it in your mind, but you can go back and read it. It's like taking a random sample and conducting a randomized experiment is the ideal, uh, but it's not always achievable. In fact, it's, it's rare, rarely achievable to do both a random sample and a randomized experiment. Because think about if you're running an experiment, um, you might get, you won't get a random sample of people who want to participate. So, um, so it's sometimes hard to get both. And so if the focus of the study is to use a sample to estimate a statistic for the entire population, all you need is a random sample. So like if I want to know how many um, uh, Duke students take summer session courses, I don't need an experiment for that because I just want to know a statistic. I want to know what proportion takes summer session. So I don't even need to think about an experiment. I just want to know um, the proportion. And so I don't, need, I don't need to set up a randomized experiment. If the focus of the study is to establish causality from one variable to another, you need a randomized experiment. Um, and you can settle for a non-random sample. So, there's sort of a trade, you know, if you're thinking of your, of your trade-off, if you want uh, a statistic about the entire population, definitely need a random sample. If um, you want to establish causality, you definitely need a randomized experiment. So not just an experiment, but one in which the people are split up into two random, are randomly split into two groups. Okay, so um, for this, um, Basically, the assignment is, is problems in the book. And, in, and as you're going through the assignment, if you have any question, just shoot me an email. And then what I'll do is I'll send it out to the rest. I'll send the answer out to the rest of the group. So some of you have already done that, and that's been helpful. Um, so what we're going to do for, for part two, and what I'm thinking, for part two, I think the best thing would be um, type it up so that you, you have a copy of it and then print it out and give it to me. Um, because 
um, you're going to be reusing this information. It's going to be sort of building towards your, your final project, and no sense in having to write it all out and then wait for me to hand it back and stuff like that. So um, uh, type, it, type up part two. Part one, I think, is probably easier. I mean, you can type it if you want, but um, mainly for part two. So what we're going to do is for the 10 variables that you looked up um, two days ago or yesterday, you're going to find um, five different variables um, that you think may be associated with one of the 10 variables uh, you selected. So, so Tim, you can say, OK, one of the variables I selected was law one. I need to find one variable that's associated with law one, or that I think would be associated. You don't even have to um, find, these, find it to be associated. And then explain why you think those two variables would be associated. You can't use death penalty, because I already gave you that example. But basically, that would be the thing. It's like, find a variable in the GSS that you think would be associated with law one, and just identify, here's the, the variable I think would be associated with law one, and here's um, uh, the question that it asks, and here's why I think those two variables might be associated with each other. And then do that five times. Um, so five, pick five different variables from the 10 and find one that's associated with it. 